the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Good morning again. And today we continue in our series of the earth-shattering nature of the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we scan across the Christmas nativity today, we will be zeroing in on a very key individual of that day. He played a key role. He was central. Oh, and it's not the shepherds. It's not the angels. That's for another day. But in fact, you will never see this individual on any of your Christmas cards. You will never see this individual at any nativity or crash because he never came. And yet, he played such a key role, such a major role for us. And indeed, it was earth-shattering. And so we pan out our view today, away from the individual stable, away from the actual manger, and we go high up onto a fortress, high up on the mountain, in an area that now is known as the West Banks. For today... Today, we look at King of Judah, Herod. Earth-shattering. In the opening verses of the second chapter of Matthew, we are introduced to two very different types of rulers. We read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the territory of Judah, during the rule of King Herod. So there's Jesus, and there's Herod two very different rulers. They could not have been in starker contrast. We are going to zero in on Herod for a while and look at who he was and try to answer that question. Why? Why was he all so upset? Why was he so rattled by this baby that he wanted to kill him? Now, in addition to what we know about King Herod in that second chapter of Matthew, if and when you studied ancient world history, as most of us did if you've been to high school already, most of of us studied it, and you've come across Herod before, but maybe you didn't realize it. Even if you didn't connect those dots, you studied about him. And in case you sort of slept through it, or in my case, because I hated history, I sort of like, oh yeah, that's old, let's go over here now. So let me just give a flyover here to bring some of those individual pieces back together and connect some of those dots for us. Who was this man, Herod? And we will see if we can again get some insight into why. Why did he want to kill Jesus? Remember how you studied the Roman Empire and the ruler known as Herod the Great? Ah, beginning to make some of those dots connections already, aren't you? That is the same Herod that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. That is the very same one that is spoken here in the narrative of Jesus. Herod was only about 25 years of age when he began his political career and he became the governor of Galilee. He ruled for 33 years under the Roman authority from 37 AD to 4, excuse me, 37 to 4 before Christ. Got that wrong again. 37 years before Jesus 
and four years after. He had earned the attention and the admiration of the Romans for the leadership that he demonstrated, especially in his ability to collect taxes and to suppress revolts. He proved to be an extraordinary political survivor, or maybe he was just an opportunist. I'll let you decide that one. Among his allies were several others that you studied in history. Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, remember she was the queen of Egypt, and then there was Octavian. Now, his name is maybe not as familiar to us, but do you remember when he changed his name or got a new title that was called Caesar Augustus? That's the one. Some pretty high-powered individuals and allies that he needed to keep happy in his life. Now, interestingly about him, that when civil war broke out between Mark Anthony and Octavian, Herod aligned himself with uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. However, when Octavian began to win and defeat these guys, he switched sides. Not everybody can do that. But he switched sides and switched loyalty, and he was able to convince Octavian that his loyalty really was with him from the very, very beginning. I'll let you come to your own conclusions. Was he an opportunist, or was he a survivor? As a result of his victory, Octavian was given that title, as I said, of Augustus, meaning the exalted one. Caesar Augustus, and he became the ruler and high authority at that point in the military career. And as they say, the rest is history. Herod's now position now as king of Judah and king of the Jews was now secure. And Herod would prove to be a very loyal, loyal subject to his Roman overlords. And maintaining the order of Israel was imperative Protecting the West Bank uh, of, and of, of Roman Empire, that was his specialty, and that's what he did. And just as Herod was able to navigate both sides of the Civil War, he betrayed two very, very distinct pictures or sides uh, in his own time of office and his personality. It's important as we look at Herod the man, of who he was, as we seek to answer that question that is put to us in Mark 2. So let's look at him. And we're going to first look at his accomplishments and why or how he got the name and the title of great. Now, plus the fact that as a child, Mama always told me, if you can't say anything nice, don't say nothing at all. So I want to tell you that Herod done some good things. And so we're going to look at his good side here and now. He accomplished a lot during those 33 years. And though he himself was only half Jewish, he presented himself to be the protector of Judaism. And he sought to gain the, the, the favor of the Jews in his country. During his rule, he encouraged and developed the synagogue communities. And in times of calamity, he even remitted taxes. Now that's almost unheard of. And he supplied people with some free grain. But perhaps he is best known as being a great builder. And this is what earned him the title of Herod the Great. For indeed, Judah prospered emo, immen, uh, excuse me, 
economically during his reign. He extended Israel's borders throughout his conquests, and he built fortifications to defend the Roman frontiers so that they were protected. Among some of his accomplishments, perhaps the greatest of his building projects was to rebuild the beautification of the Temple of Jerusalem, restoring it to even greater beauty and splendor than during the time of Solomon. Herod was a committed Hellenist, and we've heard about that in the past, and he admired, admired the Roman culture. And so it's not surprising that many of the things that he built were of the Roman and of the Greek style, the theaters, the amphitheaters, the hippodromes, which is an outdoor stadium for horses and chariot races. He built many of them. And he also built the aqueduct system that provided the fresh water that came to the region and fertilized and made the country green. And of course, there was the massive fortress or palace known as the Herodian, high up on that mount. That's where he lived and spent most of his time. And indeed, it was a fortress. Now, while he earned the favor of many upper-class Jews, it brought disdain from the more conservative Pharisees and the common people. In the Roman political world, Herod was constantly walking a very fine, fine line. Like many political figures, he was appointed, and he served at the pleasure of Caesar Augustus and of Rome. If they were happy, he maintained his rule. As long as Rome was in power and they were happy, his position as the king was secure. He kept his throne by balancing that delicate relationship with the Jews and the Roman Empire. Indeed, it was imperative that the area and the peace, uh, that peace was maintained in Judah. And this meant that he did have to keep peace with the Jewish people. Now, as we begin to leave our history lesson, and I've only begun to touch on the surface, if you want to see much, much more, and indeed there is so much more that has been written about him, go and look it up, read it, it is fascinating. If you love intrigue, backstabbing, believe me, there's plenty of that in his life. But we need to look briefly and more carefully at Herod's the man, not who he was as a ruler, but the man that he was that drove him to be who he was to help us answer that question that is pending. And as we turn our eyes from the, accompli uh, the accomplishments of Herod, this is when we begin to see some of the cracks that are beginning to appear in his suit of armor and more importantly, in his personality, in his character. And his characteristics reveal a much darker side of who he was, not just the great, not just the builder, but a very dark, dark side. Herod was a mixture of a clever and an efficient ruler, but he was also a cruel, cruel tyrant. As a king, he was both decisive and brutal. We saw the good that he did, but then on the other hand, he was very distrustful. He was jealous. He was vicious. He was ruthless, crushing any potential opposition. He rewarded his friends, those that sided with him, showing them and giving them political favors. 
much like we see in politics today. While those who opposed him, well, they weren't quite so lucky. This is a difference from today. Herod was known to punish, torture, even execute any and all who opposed him. He was constantly fearing conspiracy, and while Herod's power was growing and his control over himself and his family, that was slipping. Those cracks and those flaws in his personality were coming more and more and more to the forefront. He was a cruel and a power-hungry ruler who destroyed, as I said, anybody and everybody that he feared was trying to topple him from his own throne. Herod's own character as a plotter who never hesitated to resort to murder was being reproduced in his family. As they were coming up, they had lived it, they had seen it, they had witnessed it, and now this was, uh, uh, that it was being reproduced in his family, and this was leading to even more sense of terror and fear and paranoia in the tyrant's own life. Not even the members of his family were safe Because indeed, we know from history that Herod killed several of his own family members because he thought that they were plotting against him. And in truth, some of them were. He executed at least one wife. He executed three sons, at least one who tried to poison him. Excuse me, three, yeah, three sons, I said that. He executed a second wife and a mother-in-law because they were suspected of a conspiracy against him. And so he went through his family, and if he found any sense of of doubt at all, they were gone. Not surprising that even though Herod tried to be and present himself as a Jew, he didn't eat pork, but he killed sons. So is it any wonder that the Jewish people didn't like him? And this infuriated Herod, that they would not see him as their legitimate king. And now when Herod was about 70 years old, he was stricken with an incurable disease. And it was at this time, shortly before his death, that Herod heard about the wise men the Magi, who had come seeking to worship the newborn king of the Jews. And Herod thought, I thought I got rid of all them. Who is this person? In the verses of Matthew 2, we go on to see the desperate deviousness and plotting of Herod, making one last-ditch effort to remove any threat that held against his control. In Matthew 2, 7 and 8, we read, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and found out from them the time that the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. When in truth, Herod was planning to kill the infant Jesus. We go on in Matthew 2, 13. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
And now we know a little bit more about the history, the background, the character of Herod that leads up to this story, this place in Scripture. It is easy, easier now to return to that question, why did King Herod want to kill Jesus shortly after the birth? What difference could a little tiny baby make to somebody so powerful as Herod? The truth was that it was Herod's paranoia. He feared this child that in time he would take over his throne. And so the dying man, still struggling to grasp and to hold hard onto the power that was quickly slipping through his fingers and that had brought him and his family only suspicion, hatred, and death. Herod, now, if he was willing and able to kill members of his own family, including two wives, three sons, a mother-in-law. Is it any wonder that he sought to kill this baby that he had never met that was a threat to him? The one that the Magi proclaimed as king of the Jews, something that he could never himself attain? Oh, he had it in name, his own name, but he never in reality had it. Herod's ambition, paranoia, and cruelty created that perfect storm of opportunity and shattered his peace and the peace of Israel and Jerusalem and beyond. In Matthew 2, 3, we read these words, that when King Herod heard that he had been, uh, that he had been deceived by the Magi, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Oh, and one last note about Herod before we turn our eyes away from him. Herod's final act of vengeance against his uh, contemptuous subjects, he rounded up all of the leading Jews, commanded that upon his death, that they would, all of these Jews that he had rounded up, that they would be put to death. That they should be executed on the day that Herod died. His reasoning was that if nobody mourned for Herod's death, at least they would be mourning at his death. Now, doesn't that make perfect sense? No, not of a rational person, not of a rational human being. And so this is where we see the cracks of Herod most deep. Fortunately, upon his death, the order was overruled, the prisoners were, prisoners were released, and we see that Herod's dream of power and glory had turned into a nightmare. His family was in ruin. His kingdom, which he had tried so desperately to control and maintain, slipped away from him. And he had no control, no opportunity to gain it back. The peace, his peace, was shattered. And he died a broken man. Now, the brightness, the stars, the beauty, the contrast that Jesus is born into this time of unrest and distress as Herod's life and the political career is unraveling. The Israelites were indeed so ready for a new king. They were so ready for that long-awaited Messiah. Matthew 2, as I said, introduced us to two different kind of rulers, Herod on the one side and Jesus on the other, two men that could not have been in starker contrast, contrast to all that Herod was, all that he brought to the throne, contrast all of that with the image of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, born in the manger, and that we'll soon hear about on Christmas Eve again. 
Herod had all of the great power and the great wealth, and yet he did not have the peace. He did not have security. Herod used fear, control, and manipulation, and it fostered fear, control, and manipulation, mistrust, suspicion of others, and the total opposite of peace. Yet Jesus, God, Emmanuel, had all the power, and yet he did not rule over people. He did not try to control people. Jesus came as a humble, innocent child, as a teacher, as a servant leader who ruled with honesty and led with honesty and love and truth. But that's not all. Like the people in Jesus' time, we too, we too live in a world that is longing for peace. They long for peace because they didn't have it. We long for peace because we don't see it in our world today. The world is not just longing for peace. Our world is not just longing for peace. But at times, don't you think that sometimes we even worry whether it's even possible to achieve peace anymore? We and others can spend our entire lives in search of peace, chasing after this and chasing after that, grasping for security of things, only to have them slip away from us and slip through our fingers as they did in the, through the fingers of Herod. When we look for peace in things of circumstances, we are looking and chasing after all of the wrong things. How many times have we heard that once so-and-so is elected, or this party is in power, or that party is in power, then everything's going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to be okay then, but we know that it's not. Or that the peacefulness is only for a little while, it's temporary. The people in Jesus' day wanted Jesus to take control and to be a political force. They wanted him to be that, that leader that came on the white horse with a sword. They wanted him to bring peace. But true peace is not political peace. It is not the same. It is not military. Everyone getting along internationally, that kind of peace, oh, it's wonderful when it happens. It's warm. It's great. It's calming for all of us. But yet we know that that kind of peace, the peace accords, they're fragile. They're fleeting. They're temporary. Just look down through history, and especially look in our last century. Is there any peace accord that's, that held? They're all temporary. Yet we read in Scripture that Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. And so what does that mean, and how is it different? What is the biblical meaning of peace? It is so much more than just the absence of conflict. It is taking action to restore a broken situation. It is more than a state of inner tranquility. It is a state of wholeness and completedness. Biblical peace is not something that we can create on our own. It is something that flows out of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and grows and grows. It began with Jesus, the Prince of Peace.
It is not primarily just a sense of eternal peace. It is not merely a psychological experience of everything is zen, it is calm, it is beautiful, it is carefree, it is stress-free. That's not the same. It is not primarily relational peace. Christmas peace isn't primarily everyone just getting along with each other in our family, forgetting all of the things that annoy us about each other for that one day, as wonderful as that might be, all of that is temporary also, and that too can be fleeting. No, Christmas peace, the peace of Christ, it is something much bigger and better. During Christmas time, we sing, and we will be singing this a little bit later, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But how often do we really, really listen to the meaning of those words? what they're actually saying. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to bring peace, the restoration, to reconcile, to bring us and God back together. This is the most essential kind of peace that we need, and yet sadly, it is the least likely that most people will seek after. It is the peace, the restoration, that is most essential. God restored back, or us restored back to God. For in Ephesians 2, 14 and following, we read, that Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, Many of us have heard that repeated time and time again. And that speaks about a peace that is well-being. It is a calmness. It is a harmony. It is tranquility as individuals. The Greek word for peace is irene, which means unity, accord, and to join together that which was once separated. Jesus Christ came shattered the old sense of peace, replacing it with something exceedingly greater. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to earth to restore our relationship with God. It was broken, shattered way back in Genesis. Now Christ comes to restore it. And through Jesus Christ, we have the gift of Irene, of peace, the unity between us and God, restoring that which has been broken by sin at Christmas time, here and now, and indeed throughout the whole year. We can celebrate the birth of Jesus. We can celebrate who Jesus is, Emmanuel, God with us. God came through the birth of a little baby, offering us peace today, that helps us weather the storms of life and the promises of the eternity with, Jesus, with God in heaven. That, indeed, is true peace.
Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your sending the Prince of Peace to us, that we might know and have that gift given to us as a free gift through the birth of your Son and his death on the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen.